This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and I'm at the University of Pittsburgh. And today I'll be discussing one of our most recent articles in the journal, ATS Scholar, called Who is Teaching Residents in the ICU? Perceptions of Interprofessional Teaching at an Academic Medical Center with our guest, Dr. Kami Petri. Dr. Petri is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and she serves as the associate program director for the Joint Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at the combined MGH and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship in Boston, where her research focuses on enhancing teamwork and collaboration in the ICU via multi-professional teams, in addition to procedural and POCUS teaching. Dr. Petri also serves as an instructor for interprofessional education at the Shapiro Institute for Education and Research at the Beth Israel and Harvard. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Petri. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I was excited to chat with you today, both about your work in this area, as, a, as well as your kind of journey in medical education. So maybe you can just tell us at the top of this conversation a little bit about your, your entry into this world of medical education. Certainly. Very happy to. I actually knew I wanted to be involved in education before I knew I wanted to go into medicine, actually. Both of my parents are college professors, and so throughout my undergrad journey, I had done a lot of work, you know, TAing and education and things, and my parents were really influential there. Jumping forward a lot to fellowship, I realized that, you know, besides the clinical questions I had that I needed to read up more on when I left the unit or left consult service, I was really asking myself a lot about education questions and who was teaching me, who was I learning from? And that sort of sprung into my interest in my research time during fellowship to really try and curate a set of medical education research skills. That's really cool. And I think that's that's what I really enjoy about talking to people about their, their professional journey is people come to this from so many different perspectives. And I really appreciate that you come to it with a background like in education, interest in education, even before coming to medicine. So thank you for sharing that with us. So then how, if at all, did that kind of background and your, your process into this part of professional identity fuel your interest in asking questions specifically about interprofessional education and teaching? I think I would anchor this all in August of my intern year when I was overnight in the CCU or the cardiac ICU at, at the BI where I did my residency. And there was a moment when a really sick patient came in and, you know, it's August of intern year. I'm on nights. I have no idea what to do. And there was this incredible ICU nurse who came to me and said, this is when you walk in the room and you say, we are going to push three amps of bicarb because I was running around trying to find the bicarb in the, you know, in the Pixis or somewhere else. And I had no idea what I was doing. And she taught me my role. She gave me a place on the team and she helped me understand how to manage myself as a physician, a young one in a really terrifying moment for me. And that moment really stuck with me and helped sort of launch this idea that I kept having about who else is teaching me, particularly in the ICU, particularly when you're on your own, whether it be your peers, whether it be a nurse, a pharmacist, an RT, and that sort of really fueled my interest in trying to understand who else besides physicians and attendings were influencing my education? Mm, I love that. And I love, I love both the story because I think so many of us can relate to that. And I especially love the acknowledgement of not only do we learn from the classic attending kind of top-down way, but also not only from peers, but from folks who have entirely different training than us. And we always say like, you're never alone, right? You're never alone in the ICU. You're never alone in your training. And you're especially never alone because your team is so diverse and so deep if you recognize it to be that way. Yeah. I I really felt that way as a resident and particularly felt just enormous gratitude for the expertise I had, you know, helping to guide me in those, particularly in the ICU in those tough moments and tough decisions and really valued a collaborative approach to patient care. 
it always struck me as odd that here I was a few months into being a physician and, you know, a couple months of ICU time here and there. And there's this, you know, ICU nurse and she's been there for 35 years. And I've seen sepsis, you know, 20 times and she's seen it thousands of times. You know, what does she know that I don't know? And what can I learn from her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tremendous experience and and just an incredible resource that's around us. And I think thinking about how we impart that, not just the awareness to our trainees is just a really interesting idea. So yeah, thanks for doing this work and for kind of bringing us into that moment with you. I also really appreciated that the beginning of your introduction, like the first line of your introduction talks about the importance of teamwork, which brought to my mind, I have little kids and they always say teamwork makes the dream work. So it just kind of like, really, I like the concept of, of focusing on that collaborative nature of the work that we do. So to give our listeners a little bit of background and to get us on the same page, can you explain to us about how you sort of define or can you frame for us how we should think about interprofessional education and teaching? Absolutely. So this is a sort of an area fraught with a lot of definitions that are overlapping and inconsistent, which makes it all the more fun to sort of parse out. So interprofessional education technically refers to learners, you know, students in healthcare professions from different professions. So a nursing student and a, a medical student, for example, doing a learning activity together. It doesn't necessarily explicitly say who the teacher of that activity is, but you have learners, students from different professions learning together. Whereas interprofessional teaching that you referred to is a sort of newer term coined by Dr. Asha Anandaya, Christy Burkhart, and Jackie O'Toole that really emphasizes the learner is a trainee in one of the professions, but the teacher is from a different profession. So that would be me like the you know CCU intern who doesn't know what she's doing and an ICU nurse teaching me about you know leadership skills in the midst of a pericode situation. Okay, so it sounds like the interprofessional teaching specifically acknowledges that the teacher is of a different training or profession than the learner in that setting. Yes, specifically of different professions. Exactly. So that's where that inter sort of between professions and then teaching, because the teaching is the emphasis rather than the learning activity being Mm -hmm. across different professions. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. Great. And, you know, in thinking about these other health professions, you mentioned that the many of the other, other meaning outside of like MD or DO physician training, other professions do a pretty decent job of teaching some skills around this, meaning interprofessional sort of dynamics, I suppose. But there's not much out there about how education looks within maybe like physician, especially GME level training. Can you talk to us then first about how interprofessional education is approached at the undergraduate medical school level, because it sounds like there's a little bit more work that's been done there and sort of what the gaps are beyond that. Sure, absolutely. So this is a sort of fascinating history of medical education in some ways. So when the Institute of Medicine report to Air as Human came out, and I think it was 2000-ish, this created a big emphasis on patient safety, which then we were looking to the teams that we were working in to try and enhance patient safety. We work in interprofessional multidisciplinary teams. We should work on improving that teamwork. And then fast forward a bit to 2014, the LCME or the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, which as I'm I'm sure you and our listeners know, accredits medical schools and MD medical schools specifically, they created a standard that all undergraduate medical education programs had to have interprofessional education experiences. So make sure your students learn from learners, students of other professions. And Though the language of that particular standard has changed a little bit in the years, subsequently, that spirit is still there. However, this whole emphasis on IPE, because, you know, of course, medical school schools rush to change their curricula, et cetera, et cetera. This whole spirit is still there, but there's no reinforcement in the GME world. So there's nothing necessarily that mirrors that same spirit in the ACGME 
milestones, et cetera. So we spend all this time trying to build these skills and reinforce them in UME, but you get into GME world and it's been shown in surveys data that the principles of IPE are not really reinforced for our residents across different fields, not just medicine alone. Yeah, that's so interesting to know kind of where it came from, like where the push came for it, because, you know, and this is like kind of indication of like when I was in school and when I trained, but I don't recall it formally being part of my undergraduate medical training. And it's probably because of the timing. And so I wonder too about how maybe the lack of reinforcement of this at the GME level also has to do with like an absence or, or limitation of faculty development around it for like this generation of us that may have, we're like, who are now the teachers and we may have not received really a re- robust formal training in it as well. Yes. In addition to the lack of requirements, so to speak, or milestones around it yeah. at the GME level. Yeah, exactly. And in particular, thinking about the feasibility of having, say, a you know medical resident and a pharmacy resident working on the same team may be different than the feasibility of a medical resident and a nursing student working on the same team or having a learning experience together. So that's why our group was really interested in this idea of interprofessional teaching, because you already have fully trained expert individuals in these different professions available all the time in, you know, in your hospitals. And can we use them to improve education and hopefully improve our collaboration, our teamwork and our patient care? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, the perspectives are, are different, you know, like the goals in the end for patient care are the same, but the, the way to get there is different and sort of understanding that I think would be really helpful. And also, as you said, like allows your team to function a little bit better. Okay. So let's talk about this paper, which I understand is a part of a larger body of work. So we'll we'll get a little bit of insight into some of those other components as well. But for this specific project, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the the background question that you were asking and then the survey design process? Absolutely. So we were interested in understanding what kinds of contributions were our interprofessional providers making on rounds specifically, and also how were they sort of perceived by you know the learners, i.e. the residents and the attendings, because the attendings are the sort of de facto leader of rounds. And so initially, I did a review for sort of teamwork-related surveys to try and understand if there was any kind of metric out there for teaching or collaboration, and none really included much teaching. There were surveys out there for um, sort of the quality of interprofessional rounding, but again, it really wasn't about teaching. So I had the opportunity to create this survey sort of on my own and develop it through this literature review and then iterative testing and pilot testing and some cognitive interviewing with our participants as well. Again, tell us what, you know, we, so it sounds like you wanted to understand what the roles were and the contributions from people of different professions on rounds was, did you have a hypothesis for like what the implications of that meant for either the learner or the functioning of the team or patient care or something like that? Yeah, I will say we we drew heavily upon our personal experience when designing the survey and also thinking about what kinds of outcomes we expected. But because in my initial literature review, I really couldn't find anything that previously published describing the roles that different ICU providers have on ICU rounds. I really wasn't sure what I was going to find, except what I had from my own anecdotal experience as you know, a resident and fellow and now an attending at the same institution. So I was hoping to, at the very least, bring some quantitative data to this realm so that we could understand, you know, not even qualify as this good or bad, but just understand what is the current state happening here. And then we could do some more digging around that to understand, is this good? Is this bad? What are attitudes about it, et cetera? Got it. Okay. So this was to help sort of set the stage and just understand like, what is our, what's the current practice? What's the standard of standard of care, so to speak? In, in some ways. And I mean, I have no idea if what we're doing is actually the standard, but just 
trying to put some data out there and some numbers about what's happening and then being able to hopefully better understand, you know, is this something to strive for? Is there actually even a problem here from a quality improvement standpoint, just sort of saying we're extolling interprofessional teaching and teamwork and collaboration? Is there a problem here? We don't even know if there is. So mm-hmm. let's just take a look at what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a great, I mean, that's a good point. And, you know, oftentimes two things. One is I love that you highlighted that you went to the literature and there was none. And so that was, you know, a, gen- a way to generate a whole project. And again, kind of career work on on understanding this topic because it didn't already exist. And then all the questions that come from that, which is just like a really neat part of the work that we do in medical education research specifically. So thanks for highlighting that. So then can you tell us about the framework that you came up with, which entails four different types of contributions on rounds that you identified, kind of where that came from? And can you explain what those four things mean? Absolutely. So the main bulk of this portion of the survey that we're reporting in this paper was looking at four contribution types that are reporting, observing, recommending, and teaching. And to be honest, we really framed those after the RHYME framework and also reflecting upon my experience of what kinds of things do interprofessional providers offer on rounds. Reflecting on that and in subsequent iterations, I probably would have amended it a little bit, but I can speak about that a little bit later. That was our current tool that we that we used at that time. So reporting was really used to identify when somebody was providing routine data or, or information, like reading vital signs. And observation or observing was when the provider highlighted an event or data that they thought was clinically relevant. So that might be, hey, the propofol is going up and the patient's getting more hypotensive. A recommendation would be when the provider added an opinion or suggestion about patient care, such as, well, I think we should, you know, place a central line to put the patient on pressors. And then teaching we defined as providing generalizable knowledge or explaining one's thinking. So that might be, you know, going along with this thread, explaining the risks of using peripheral vasopressors in a patient without central venous access, for example. Okay. That's helpful. Can you say a little bit more about the teaching one, like what does it look like exactly? And did all the groups who were participating in the survey have an agreement about what, what the definitions of these different activities were, especially teaching or, or was, were the, was there room for interpretation and I don't know how that would play out thinking about, again, how all of us on an interprofessional team come to this team with a variety of different training. Yes. So I I will say the definition of teaching was one of the most challenging parts of the survey development, because we knew that we needed to define all of these contribution types, these four categories in some way to make it really clear to our respondents what specific activity we were trying to measure. But when I went into medical education literature, believe it or not, I really couldn't find a good definition of teaching. Even, you know, survey-based questions like what we were, or survey-based studies like what we were doing about teaching experiences or teaching frequency, I couldn't find something useful. And so in our study group, we just were, we worked on this definition a little bit over and over. Another way that we think about it is sort of the, the what and the why about how you are, why you're making a recommendation or providing something that is a little bit more broadly applicable. Although there's certainly maybe some gray area between recommending and teaching. And I have also completely skipped over the hidden curriculum in this framework so far. To make sure that our participants had hopefully some amount of consistency in their understanding of the definitions, we provided the definitions of these four categories right at the outset of our survey after after collecting demographic information so that our participants were encouraged to kind of let these definitions marinate a little bit prior to moving on to the actual questions part of the survey. So we had them, again, sort of separate from the questions but you know, it's certainly a limitation to our study, I would say, and just survey-based research in general to make sure that you're getting the participant to recall 
the event in the way that you would also perceive it and then report it as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you, you need a shared language, right? You, like you as the survey giver or solicitor of these answers, and you want people to interpret the the words that you're using the same way that you intend for them to be. So I appreciate though, at least you, inc- you included the the definitions for what you wanted, how you wanted them to respond to certain yeah. topics. I don't know. Did you find that there was overlap? Like, were you worried that there would be overlap between these terms or did you feel like they were really separate and people would be able to untangle the activities? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much we would be able, able to measure if they were unable to, you know, you know, follow or adhere to the definitions. Um, as we'll talk about in some of the results, I wonder if that could have been been a challenge for us. I will say one other strategy that we used to try and really emphasize and reinforce the definitions where we provided examples that were tailored to each professional. So I, I went through the examples of, you know, hypotension and placing a central line and peripheral vasopressors. Um, and that was the examples we used for a nurse. But for example, for a respiratory therapist, we went all the way from talking about hypoxemia to, you know, explaining how an esophageal balloon works, which is commonly used at our institution. So I'm hopeful that providing those examples might have anchored it a little bit Mm -hmm. better for our respondents. But truth be told, I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, that's helpful, though. Yeah. And, you know, it can only be without it being a conversation with each survey taker, you, there's not a way to know exactly, but, you know, presumably through pilot testing and things like that, some of that probably got tightened up a little bit. Yeah. I will, I will say one way that we have tried to uh, sort of overcome this particular challenge of the definitions is in a follow-up study we did to this work, we actually completed direct observations of ICU rounds and, recorded how often these particular types of contributions were occurring. And so hopefully that provides a little bit more objective data rather than this inherently subjective report. Yeah, definitely. That gets both at the recall bias as well as at the shared categorization of the Mm -hmm. different activities for sure. Okay. So then also as way of background, can you tell us a little bit about how the culture of your rounding structure, your institution and unit impacted the questions that you ask and perhaps also the responses that you got um, or the range of contributions? Yes, absolutely. So in the three ICUs that were included in this study, there is a sort of set script, so to speak, that's followed for each page and presentation. And in that script, that does include designated times for each interprofessional provider to contribute specifically, but that's usually just a report of information. So we hoped also that our tool would capture that baseline reporting, meaning are we even letting you know the pharmacist read the list of medications? Is that even happening, even though it's supposed to? And our hope also was that that routine inclusion of the interprofessional provider on rounds might promote a culture where our group members felt more invited to speak up or at least more comfortable speaking up because they already had a sort of moment to speak. And then I will say anecdotally, many of our residents have worked into their script because they sort of uh, conduct the process of rounds to take a moment and pause for any additional concerns that haven't been covered. And so I think it's also an an ICU where we hadn't routinely changed any of the grounding structures at that point. So there was nothing new that had been done recently to change the culture or the structure. These units also, I should mention, don't have advanced practice providers in them, or at least they didn't at the time of the study. And in one of the units, there is a fellow routinely, and then in another one sort of sporadically. And so that could have also influenced just how rounds, rounds were run, different cultures, different teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And later in the paper, I think you, you speak even about a microculture as it relates to perhaps like the individual people or attending who's running the rounds. So I think that that's a really good point and gives us a little bit of a framework to the what the climate is sort of like um, and how the rounds were run uh, to understand how this project uh, took shape. So in that case, then, do you think that the findings could be different in different units in your own institution or different institutions or even something like geographic regions or generationally, you know, if there's like a really junior person running the rounds versus somebody very senior and experienced or an age spread of the way that the team sort of 
demographics look? Certainly, certainly, certainly. I, even just thinking, you know, each particular ICU, like you mentioned, has this microculture, but then across different disciplines. So if I were to repeat this survey in the trauma ICU or the cardiac ICU or the neuro ICU, I, I imagine I might get different findings. And would that be reflective of a different round structure, a different culture, a different team? It's hard to know, but I did try very hard to perform the survey over a long period of time, I should mention, so that we did capture multiple different teams and multiple different learners. And I think in terms of sort of more regionally and nationwide and even worldwide, I I would imagine very much, yes, that you, we could potentially get different, different results. And the other thing I should really mention is that these data were all collected prior to the COVID-19 pandemic and which significantly impacted our ICUs, our staffing patterns, particularly with regards to having providers present now with less experience or those who have had shorter tenures at our hospitals or in our units. And so I imagine if we were to repeat this study at this point, that would certainly have different results. Yeah, good point. Or even, yeah, just having the the luxury of being able to have a respiratory therapist around with you every time on every patient may not be feasible, maybe on this side of of the intensity of the pandemic due to staffing issues in a lot of different places. Yeah. One kind of logistical question, uh, you mentioned that the survey was administered to different groups of people on different, with different media, essentially, like some was a Qualtrics survey, some was a paper survey. Is there a specific reason that that was the case? Yes. I customized the survey delivery and administration method so as to be the most convenient and fit the needs of the participants as a group. So, for example, our you know pulmonary critical care attending group is very email happy, but people miss email sometimes. And so we took a dual approach by not only sending a survey out via email, but also sending it out via paper form when we had faculty meetings in person. <laughs> and then for our respiratory therapy group, we did these surveys on paper during a regularly scheduled meeting time. And I was able to customize all these through the help of my collaborators who were all in these different professional groups and who could tell me, yeah, I think this would work best for my group. So I didn't make the decision for them of how they would get the best response rate. I should also mention that one of the reasons I was able to sort of do a lot of this was not only did I have a lot of collaborators and a lot of champions and invested parties, I also was very fortunate to have some dedicated research time as a fellow to be able to really commit the hours to manage all of this work. So I couldn't have done it alone and I could not have done it without the time. Another team, another shout out for your team. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that's a really great point. Um, you know, the challenge of survey-based research is getting survey responses. And so I think it's a good point that you make that you customized it for your participants and you tried to lower the barrier as much as possible. So you're, and also a little bit of redundancy, you know, if we're not going to get them on email, we're going to get them in paper and I'm going to go and physically catch them. And, you know, any of us who have done this work know the importance of corralling your, (laughs) corralling your willing participants. So, and the important, you know, the importance of actually getting your your responses so that you can have a good, robust set of data to look at. So props to you, especially because you had a great response rate, 78%. So you already kind of alluded to how you managed that, but I don't know any other tips for folks who are out there and feeting overwhelmed by getting survey responses. I think one capitalizing and aligning with or capitalizing on relationships and aligning the the utility of your survey with your stakeholders is extremely important. So for example, when I started to develop this question and was working on you know pilot testing, for example, I brought this to Mickey Nursing Leadership. And I said, these are the questions I'm interested in asking. Look at the survey. What do you think? Is there anything I'm missing? Is there something you're curious about that if I'm doing this survey, I can help you collect some data and partnering with them, not only in teaching, but in research, you know, about our units has been really ratifying. And I think also demonstrates just respect for their influence, which clearly is, you know, a a motivator of mine. And then I think in person when possible, I think was very important for me, which, you know, obviously there are sometimes limitations to this, but for the nurses, for example, all of whom were completed on paper, I was at our sort of ICU morning huddle in the different units multiple times per week. Cause again, I had the time 
thanks to my fellowship research schedule. And then also I had the relationships thanks to, you know, performing research at the institution where people knew me. And so that was very valuable. And I'm again, just really grateful to those who were willing to take the survey and take the time. And then the final thing I would recommend is tightening your survey as much as possible because attention spans are short. And so keeping it crisp and to the point and you know, easy to read and all those things, I think feel like small details, but in additive, I think make a big difference. Mm, all really, really valuable tips and points that absolutely have enhanced your, your results. So all of those resonate very much with me. So thank you for sharing all of that. So now give us the give us the good news. Tell us about your main findings that we should like kind of walk away with. Sure. Sure. Well, again, I can't really judge sort of the, if, if what the findings were, were good or bad, but what I can say is that our interprofessional providers participate routinely on ICU rounds. So we saw, you know, high levels of participation across the board, but with regards to teaching specifically, it was certainly less frequent and even characterizes infrequently with respect to other contributions. And we did see a bit of a a profession-based effect, if you will. I don't want to call it a class effect, but meaning that different professions really did have different rates of teaching, both that they reported themselves and then also what the learners, i.e. the residents and the attendings reported witnessing from those professions as well. Sometimes those things were concordant For example, nurses reported teaching the least, and that was also mirrored by what the residents and the attending says, but there was also some discordance, namely the respiratory therapist reported very high rates of teaching, but that was not mirrored in what the residents and the attendings observed reported about the respiratory therapist. The other thing I would mention is that outside of rounds, teaching was something we also did investigate a little bit in the survey, and I think that really represents an important opportunity for interprofessional teaching, namely that different professions might be better suited for teaching outside of rounds rather than on rounds. Okay. Okay. So the headline is basically lots of collaboration, but on rounds, the non-physician professions seem to teach less than anticipated, perhaps. Or at least in comparison to the other contributions. So they are certainly contributing, participating, collaboration, as as you mentioned, but the amount of teaching that's happening is distinctly lower than the other contribution types across the board. Mm -hmm. But then outside of rounds, more teaching directly from the other professions were recognized. And then the the point about the the discordance between self-report and perception from the learners is really interesting. Can you hypothesize as to what was going on there? Yeah, I, I thought this was a really interesting finding. So to be specific about it, so what we found is that the respiratory therapists reported a sort of higher frequency for all contribution types. So reporting, observing, recommending, and teaching in comparison to what was perceived or reported by residents and attendings. So RTs were saying we're participating a lot more than the residents and the attendings recognized. And that difference was most pronounced in the categories of recommending and teaching. And then in terms of, from a statistical standpoint, there was a significant difference of the RT self-report of teaching than what the attendings and residents said. So I think, why might that be? That could certainly be because of a challenge with the definition of teaching. Perhaps it was you know misunderstood or not emphasized. The survey was administered also to the respiratory therapist during uh, two separate routine meetings that their group has. And so perhaps they were rushed to finish it. And so weren't able to give the definition as much time, or perhaps the the lesion, if you will, is on the side of the the residents and the attendings, namely that they are not perceiving the participation of RTs in the same way Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And then the other thing I would mention is that our respiratory therapists are not present on rounds for patients who do not have respiratory failure, as you might expect. So for patients who are mechanically ventilated, or on positive pressure ventilation or on hypnosal cannula, the respiratory therapist will be routinely present. So it's possible that for the residents and attendings, 
their perception of the RT uh, contribution types was sort of diluted mm-hmm. by the rounds that they're on where the RTs are not present. Mm-hmm. That makes some the sense. are different for the different professions, so to speak. Exactly. So the exposure of RTs to residents and attendings is less than the exposure of a nurse to the resident and the attendings, for example, yeah. uh, because a nurse is present for every single patient and pharmacist is present for every single patient. So I can't completely explain it, but we have some ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the pharmacists. I also thought it was interesting that across the interprofessional groups, the ICU physicians reported inviting pharmacists to teach most frequently compared to the nurses and the respiratory therapists. Any thoughts on that or ways to understand that finding? Or this actually relates a little bit to some work, some follow-up work that our group is doing right now where we've completed and are analyzing some focus group data of our attendings in, in our group about this particular topic of interprofessional teaching both on rounds and outside of rounds. And what we're learning is that it seems to be sort of intellectually easier to formulate a question to ask a res- uh, to ask a pharmacist um, than perhaps other professions. And I wonder if that's related to a similar sort of pedagogy of teaching, the way you know a pharmacist, particularly critical care pharmacists, have a very similar, educational trajectory to physicians and sort of the thought process, I think is in the critical thinking process is somewhat similar between the two groups. Mm -hmm. And then I think also just in the intensive care unit for every single patient, they're always on medications and there are always medication interactions. And the pharmacist area of expertise is not only very tangible, but I think really fills a gap for many of the attendings And so it's perhaps what to ask them is more readily available in their minds in comparison to say a different profession, such as a nurse, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's an interesting finding that like begs for more, more work. So I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. You're investigating this a little bit more. And then interestingly, you mentioned that there seemed to be more teaching from nurses and respiratory therapists at night and at the bedside outside of round, like formal rounds. Can you say more about that and maybe why that might be the case? Yes, absolutely. So with regards to the RTs, what I will say is that it's very clear in speaking to these different groups and looking at different types of data we've gotten in this project that having a, a machine, something very tangible, something very physical that has inputs and outputs is very helpful as a vehicle for teaching. And so I think that really probably explains why the RTs are teaching a lot at the bedside. And then also with regards to at night, I will say at our particular hospital at the time the study was done, we did have an overnight attending in-house, but they were covering three units across two campuses and so not always readily available. And so the RT's expertise, I think, was really highlighted in some moments particularly because residents really don't get much reinforcement on mechanical ventilation in other rotations during their residency. With regards to nurses, we're certainly learning both through focus groups of ICU nurses and our attendings, like I mentioned, that it really seems that the nurses' expertise is readily highlighted at the bedside, whether that be through demonstrating how they do their particular assessment, how they make particular, you know, hemodynamic measurement, for example, titrate a certain medication, you know, complete a CAM assessment, things like that. And I think it's when you have fewer people around, particularly at night or particularly at the patient's bedside, it's much easier to spend time on learning those those particular skills and learning from nursing. And so I think it taught me that I think rounds is maybe not the best place for all teaching, even though the whole team is together. Yeah. And I mean, functionally, you can't fit everything in on rounds, right? There's all the rest of the the, the 23 other hours of the day. So yes. um, yeah, it's good to recognize that teaching is happening throughout and, and in different environments. And there might just be settings that are more conducive to different types of teaching. So that, that's what I think that was helpful to actually like see that it's happening in other in other settings. Maybe just highlight for us some limitations of the study that are like of note or interesting. Certainly. Well, of course, you know, this was a single center 
survey. Um, we did do this over uh, three different units, which, you know, hopefully captured a sort of broader swath of providers and things, but that's certainly a limitation. And like you alluded to earlier, the idea of sort of a microculture in each unit, I think is really important to think about in terms of the generalizability to other settings. With a survey-based study, of course, recall bias, I think is very important. And we conducted this study over somewhat varying periods of time. For example, for the nurses, because you know, with challenges with staffing and per diem employees, et cetera, we just did it over a four-week period of time for nurses, but had more longitudinal for other members and so you know, for other participants. So recall bias, I think, could certainly be an issue there. And I think, you know, again, the survey is really primarily focused on rounds, and we didn't really dive into all the teaching interactions that are happening. Otherwise, so if I were going to retitle the study, I might say who's teaching residents on rounds, maybe, and not just who's teaching residents in the ICU. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, we can we can addend it. <laughs> yeah. I like that though. A good distinction. Yeah. Great. Okay. So major reflections on kind of the back end of this. What what should we come away with? And what did you as the investigator kind of come away with? Yes, I think. As you know, I was a, a senior fellow when I completed the data collection here, and now as a more experienced attending, I think what I learned here is that the interprofessional providers are, you know, I'm lucky to work in a place where you know, they're collaborative and participating, but there really seems to be a step down with regards to the frequency of teaching across the board. And really, I think doing some personal reflection as an attending and the leader of the team and an educator about why that is and what I can do to enhance that, operating under the assumption that enhancing that is a good thing to do. <laughs> so I think um, next steps really from here would be trying to look at what some of the facilitators and barriers are in terms of, you know, the attending specific characteristics, you know, the interprofessional provider specific characteristics the learner specific characteristics. And then certainly I imagine, you know, environmental things that would probably influence interprofessional teaching. And then also reflecting on the fact that I don't think a sort of one size fits all approach is the way to go for enhancing interprofessional teaching. Namely that we have to look at these data from our different professional groups and understand, you know, if you know why the RTs say that they are teaching so much more than we are recognizing then, and the nurses are teaching according to their report and our perception, much less applying the same next steps to them probably doesn't make any sense. So really trying to individualize the approach, not just by interprofessional providers as a, as a whole, but also the professions. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have a sense, you alluded to like the characteristics of each of these different kind of groups do we have a do you have a sense of these things already? A bit, yes. So I'm glad you asked about that because that follows up a little bit on a study that that we did subsequently to this, where we actually, based on this and some other data, really designed an intervention-based study with using pre-post observations in our ICU, looking at does our intervention impact interprofessional provider contributions and teaching specifically, and using some of those data from that study, which will be forthcoming at some point, um, it really seems like we have a few sort of phenotypes in terms of, you know, nurses don't teach that that often, but we have some data about what they teach, we have some data about what their perceptions of themselves as educators are, and then, you know, respiratory therapists are reporting very high rates of contributions, teaching at night, teaching at the bedside, but maybe not recognized as teaching for whatever reason. And then pharmacists seemingly being the most, I will say sort of concordant between what they are reporting as teaching and then what our learners and our attendings are acknowledging as such. So in my mind, I think the next thing to do here is really making sure that we're aligning the expertise of our interprofessional providers with the learner's needs. So we both have to figure out what the learner's needs are and then also figure out the expertise with regards to what our learners need mm -hmm. and yeah. together. And it gets back to like one of the earliest points that you made when we started talking, which was we're making an assumption that 
interprofessional teaching is just blanketly a good thing, which we may believe as a value, but for whom and when and what the content is and all of those things are still questions, I suppose, like not just like any teaching is good at any time necessarily. Uh, And it gets back to, yeah, what does the, what do the learners actually need? Like maybe they don't really need the pharmacist to give them a lecture on this at this time during rounds kind of thing. So absolutely. Or maybe having the pharmacist give them a lecture on sedation is not the best use of the pharmacist's time. And so I, my goal with all of this work and this sort of inquiry is really to really figure out does, does interprofessional teaching happen? What is a good way to do it? If you're going to try to invest the time and the buy-in from everybody, because obviously this is a lot of people, everybody is extremely busy and people have different motivations and different interests. And then does it impact both? Well, I guess three things, learning, patient care, of course, and then job satisfaction in some ways, you know, because if I'm, I've always wondered if I'm an ICU nurse at an academic medical center, do I come to work thinking I'm going to teach a resident today? It's <laughs> a great question. Yeah. And I'd, yeah. And, yeah. So I, my hope is that we can try and untangle that. Cause I really think before, before we say we not need all this interprofessional education and teaching in the GME space, we have to prove that it has a benefit. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that we've necessarily done that yet. So mm-hmm. the work is preliminary. It's, you know, like I said, baseline data to just understand what the current state is. But my hope is that if we're going to, you know, invest time, training, expertise, and all the other things that we invest, should really figure out if it's if it's helpful, if it's worthwhile, and it's value giving. And what parts of it are, right? I believe that it is probably just from a face validity standpoint, but you know, what, what aspects are that we can um, enhance? Yeah. And the fourth thing I would add to your list of, is it make, you know, are the, is there learning? Is there improvement in patient care? Is there job satisfaction? And is there, is, does it enhance team, di- you know, the team dynamics yeah. back to like the original kind of conversation around the interprofessional collaboration piece? Yes, yes exactly. Thinking about does, learning from someone else who is from a different profession, actually improve your team dynamic and then actually improve your patient care. It's a lot of jumps. Mm -hmm. jumps. Yeah. Right. All these things are are dynamic for sure. I mean, I I appreciated that you had pointed out that the contribution that you refer to as recommending is, can be perceived as a sign of expertise, you know, recognizing a profession's expertise and relevance and is like a sign of respect by saying, by like eliciting a recommend, you know, recommendation. So I think these different like classes of contribution, even if it's not the teaching contribution, all do hold some amount of value potentially to how the team functions and certainly in the delivery of patient care, like somebody has to report something Yes. In order for us to like do patient care, even if in the, if we were to create a hierarchy of these things, like maybe you put that one at the bottom, but it may still be necessary in order to do the work. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that this is getting into our sort of intervention observation study a little bit, but as a part of that work, we actually had a part of our schema to document whether or not the contribution of any kind influence the patient's plan, the plan of care that day. So to your point, reporting is important. And if, you know, team member X brings up something important, even if they're just reporting it and it influences the patient care, well, then that, that matters. Absolutely. Right. Again, it may not be like the most, you know, in-depth discussion of a waveform on a ventilator or something like that, or a mechanism of action of a drug, but like the rec, you know, a, a bedside nurse's recognition of something that is reported to the team is is mm-hmm. crucial, right? So yeah, like, hey, their arm looks swollen where their right. pixelate is. <laughs> Absolutely, all of those things, right? Because the cognitive load, all the input, especially in the IC setting, is is so much, and we can't do it without different team members. So all yeah. all of these things are super important. So maybe you can kind of take us, you know, what are next steps? Where have you gone with this work? bigger picture development of interprofessional education land. Sure. I know I've alluded to a couple of other offshoots and subsequent studies that we've done locally at our institutions, but my next sort of hope really is to try and branch out of my own institutions so that I can get a better sense of how things work 
elsewhere, sort of getting at that question of generalizability. So, so to that end, we've actually recently finished some data collection on the fellow, so pulmonary critical care fellows, perceptions of interprofessional teaching, doing a multi-site focus group study across different programs in the U.S., which I'm really excited to look at those because I think that will help us understand this idea of microculture. And I think the fellows also represent a really interesting group as both learners, but also, you know, near attendings. And so they're both trying to solidify some knowledge and also start practice patterns. And to your point about if, you know, IPE wasn't really ingrained in either of our medical school educations, what is that going to look like for trainees who it was, and now they are going to be leaders of multidisciplinary, multi-professional teams. And then what I'd really like to do is some follow-up work on this intervention study that we did to really figure out really what's the best way to do this <laughs> if we're if we're going to invest all the time and energy. And I think what I'm learning the most about is that this one size fits all prescription of how to teach or, or how to have our interprofessional providers teach is, is really not the right approach. And so better sort of tailoring that to, to the expertise of the teacher. And again, aligning it with the learner needs is really key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Precision teaching. In the yeah. yeah. Some kind of evidence-based education here. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I, look forward to the findings and interventions you discover them. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion. Dr. Petri, thank you so much for joining me and for uh, talking about your work with our learners, both in terms of how to do aspects of medical education research, how to think about kind of these multidisciplinary interprofessional teams in the ICU, and sharing with us about your, your journey so far as an educator and a physician. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. And thanks, Dr. Petri, for joining us. Thanks for having me.